The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. We're the co-hosts of a podcast called A Thing or Two. It comes out every Monday and the basic premise is this. We share all the stuff we think more people should know about. So that's apps, recipes, books, the nationwide haagen vanilla bean shortage that nobody else was talking about. Our no one. Pref- no one. <laughs> our preferred vacuum brands, of which we have multiples, and critical explorations of our unique approaches to paper towel usage. Listen, we think you're going to like it. A lot of people do. And who's to say you'll be any different? Listen and subscribe wherever it is you listen and subscribe to podcasts. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. What exactly is a cult? And how can people be in a cult and not even know it? What leads people to join these groups so wholeheartedly, despite the mental and physical trauma that many times ensue? My guest on today's episode of Looking Up is Sarah Edmondson, defector of the ESP Nexium cult and author of the book Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life. She was a struggling actor in Vancouver in her late 20s when she enrolled in a series of self-improvement seminars called ESP or Executive Success Program, also known as Nexium. She worked her way up to becoming a high-level teacher and one of the best recruiters for the program. She met her husband in the program who also became the head of ESP's men's empowerment group. The unraveling of this group and the masked evilness behind so-called self-improvement is all documented on the wildly popular HBO show, The Vow. Season one is out right now, and if you haven't seen it, I urge you to begin watching. This is not just a jaw-dropping, harrowing story of a psychopathic cult leader and all the horrific things that he orchestrated. But it's a story of true resilience, a story of how a woman, mother, wife, and a marriage survived a cult, and how Sarah and her husband, Nippy, are working on reprogramming and starting anew after over a decade of brainwashing, branding, and abuse. And finally, in the most recent news as of this week, Keith Ranieri, the cult leader of Nexium, has been sentenced to 120 years in prison after the gut-wrenching experiences and thanks to the courageous work of whistleblowers like Sarah and her husband and so many others who dared to re-experience trauma, speak out, seek to heal, and most importantly, take action towards justice. Okay, before I start the podcast, I always ask all of my guests just a series of some rapid-fire style questions that help level the playing field and help the listeners get to know you a little more intimately. So I may or may not be somewhat prepared for these questions. Okay, great. <laughs> great. I have preparedness issues and you can analyze me later and maybe you can help <laughs> me that problem. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Is there a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? Yes. So I actually thought of two, one from like my past when I started my spiritual journey and then one from re- recently. So the, the one from the, the beginnings of like two decades ago is this book. Oh, The Artist's Way. Yes. Yeah. So this actually changed the way I live and, and my life because it had me doing morning pages and artist dates. And the first time it took me seven years to go get through the exercises. And then it was actually the group that I was in that I had formed with my close girlfriends that when I first heard about ESP, I was like, oh my God, guys, like, cause I was like, not 
I don't, I don't know my doctor and my therapist. My mom is a counselor, a therapist. My dad's a counselor. I love to help people. And I always be like, let's work through our issues. I'm going to help you with stuff. And we did the artist way. And then when I found ESP, I was like, this is the way to really break through our biggest limitations. And so I took half of them with me and the other half were certain that we were in a cult and turned out they were right. Another book, and I was, I, I listened to it on Audible, so I don't have it to show, but it's Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Yep which I'm sure you are familiar with. And that's more my newer book of the, of the next generation of, of uh, that genre that's really helped me a lot and helped me a lot in terms of reconnecting to my intuition, the knowing, as she calls it, and a lot of different other nuggets, which will maybe weave into the conversation. Yes, absolutely. Okay, people think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. I, I think, people think, this is what I yes. think. Yes. <laughs> that I'm put together and organized, but I'm kind of a hot mess. <laughs> And disorganized. And sometimes I go through stages, but like if you saw my closet, you'd be like, oh my God. But I, I, I think I come across as like, you know, yes. I've got my nails did. So it looks like I'm, I'm organized, but it's not. Well, it's so funny. I have a similar thing. People think because I definitely have some type A-ness and I'm a perfectionist and I just, I get shit done. They think that I'm like super organized and I like things really organized and it's how yeah. I work best, but I don't know how to execute that. I have like 50,000 like unread emails. Like I, I it is not very organized. So anyway, I, I bet you on that. I'm not going to recommend a program to help you with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> when is the last time that you cried? I think last night and with the season finale, and I gotta be totally honest. I, there was a point last night where I was like, oh my God, I, there's so much going on. I, I can't do a podcast. And I thought, no, no, she's been following. She'll get it. She'll understand yes. where I'm at. It was very, very emotional. I cried even before he was arrested when they showed the clippings at the retreat, you know, yes. where Mark and Bonnie were at yes. work and they showed like the happy moments. And that was, that was such good editing. I'm going to cry right now because I was like, there was all these good times that we had and that good time sounds so trite. It was such a beautiful community. And they kind of flashed back to all that at that location where I spent, you know, 10 days to two weeks every summer for 12 years. Wow. At that location. Yeah. And it just all came hitting hit back to me because, you know, I've had to really be like, you know, compartmentalize and put that stuff away. I don't know. This was, there were good things. Obviously I wouldn't stay for 12 years if, if there weren't. Right. There was like such a juxtaposition of like those flashbacks of even what we saw in that first episode with those happy times and like running around in the grass. And then like all of a sudden the juxtaposition of that yesterday with like that empty floor with like the cockroaches. It was yeah. just like... It was so well shot, don't you think? Yeah. Yes, it was. And in the dead of like winter. Yes. Okay, three words to describe yourself as a teenager in the high school years. Very sensitive, creative, and dorky. Mm -hmm. Big dork. Big theater nerd. <laughs> what are three things that have brought you joy today so far? So waking up this morning and hearing Ace, my 18-month-old, like the first thing I hear going, Mama. Mama. And then my six-year-old driving him to school and we, he, he gets to be DJ. And today he chose, it's a long way to the top. If you want to rock and roll by ACDC. And so just like rocking out full on with him and singing with him. That's, that would be Nippy's influence, but I, I've learned a lot about music. Thanks to him. Speaking of which today we went to the pumpkin patch and he wore a cowboy hat. I just thought it was great. And he just like went full cowboy to go to the pumpkin patch. That's so Sorry, cute. Babe. That's so cute. Those I things bring me joy. So my family. Yes. Yes. I'm almost <laughs> like, this is like, this is strange for me because I feel like 
it's not like a show. You know what I mean? Like that is so like, this was your life and coming from someone, you know, like you and Mark both who were some of the highest ranked people in the organization and spent so much time and invested so much of your life. The one thing that strikes me so much in in this whole thing is how people can kind of look at the situation and be like, didn't you see all the red flags? When like in reality, I'm not going to lie. Like I, this is like what I do for a living. I have seen gaslighting like in every capacity. I've seen what it does. I've been clued in. And this is coming from someone again, that's clued in. And I'm not going to lie the first few episodes and seeing kind of like the sort of wisdom and the good times as you talked about. And even like some of the modules and the stuff they were talking about, I was like, this sounds kind of good. Like there's a part of me that was like, I I would like that. I would love to be around other like-minded people that are learning about, you know, overcoming limiting beliefs and trying to live their best life possible and best version of themselves. So like, I just have a problem with people not being able to see that all of us have the capability, no matter what place we're in our life, to be brainwashed. And I would love to hear, I just, I want to hear lots of things, kind of starting with that. What were you like right before, what was your life like and who were you right before you went, or I guess before you met Mark? Sure. Just before I answer that, I have to say it's such a affirming sentiment, what you just said, because it's so much of what drove us to A, be public or, you know, originally it was for me to write the book, but the vow is having much more of a reach in terms of like the educational component of it. For some people, they're going to watch this and find it humorous even. Like they just like to laugh at it, which is, you know, fine. Nippy and I have to laugh because it's part of the healing. We talk more about that. But for some people, it's a wake-up call from whatever abusive thing they're in. Never mind cult. Just right. being with somebody who's abusive or a gaslighter. I mean, people aren't even like, oh, I didn't even know that this that's what that was until they see Keith doing it. And then they're like getting out of their own thing. So Anyway, I, I tie that back to who I was before I met Mark, which is somebody who's very idealistic, I think is something that in terms of my own psychoanalysis and the healing since leaving, like, how did I get into, the, into this? Like, what made me susceptible? You know, how did I miss the red flags? What was I looking for? But I think that one of the beautiful things my parents taught me was always, you know, making a difference, having an impact in the world. You know, my, my dad used to take me on peace rallies in the 80s and you know, that was within me. Like if something's not right, you say something about it. You, you stand up for it. And, you know, having a voice is important. So I think somehow I thought that acting was going to be that platform. And it just wasn't, it wasn't meaningful enough for me in my twenties. It, it, I was technically a working actor, but it didn't like fill me. And I just felt like I had more of a purpose, but I didn't really know what it was. I think I'm also somebody who always want, you know, struggled with fitting in and, mm-hmm feeling like I belonged, uh, dealt with bullying in high school and elementary school and felt like, yeah, just always looking for my people, you know, and, yeah. you know, who's my best friend. And I think that a lot of young women struggle with, you know? Yes. So I think a lot of those things was the recipe for what made me just right for the picking <laughs> in terms of meeting Mark. And it wasn't, it wasn't Mark that did it. I don't, Mark never didn't have bad intent. He really thought he was introducing me to something good. Uh, and, and and of course, another third factor is that I just seen what the bleep and I loved what, yes. the bleep. and that's ironic, you know, wanting to make media that shifts, shifts consciousness. I didn't know it was going to take 15 years in a <laughs> HBO documentary, <laughs> not quite the path I set out on, but you know, <laughs> can't always choose our 
you know, our paths in that way. But that's who I was. I think that all those components made me totally right for being perfect fit for Nexium or ESP as we called it then. How were you exposed to it? Where were you and and how do how were you introduced to it? So yeah, I met Mark at a, at a film festival, a spiritual cinema circle festival at sea. And we had assigned seating and I sat across from him and we had a, a conversation that just changed the trajectory of my life. And I, I really didn't ask much about it. He just said, well, if you like my film and there's this program and I was like, sign me up. And there happened to be one in Vancouver a few weeks later. So it just it was very serendipitous the way it all kind of was laid out in front of me. And I yeah. just leapt into the abyss. <laughs> when you went to the seminar, what, what, what was it called? Was it a seminar it was or what was it? Executive success programs or the workshop. It was five-day training. Yeah. I remember reading or seeing on, on the documentary, like the first day you were like not impressed. No, I was really, I think I talk about it in the book and the doc. The book goes into much more details, by the way, I have a copy. It should be coming to you soon. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. It was very cathartic, but not as cathartic is what's happening right now in terms of the awareness that the vow is bringing to the whole subject, which is very meaningful to me. But yeah, the, I was the, fir- the very first of the five day, I was just like, seriously, like it was so cheesy. It was such a cheesy layout and just so not initially appealing. But, you know, I trusted Mark and he's like, wait, wait, wait till day three and then see, you know, that's something that I ended up saying to other people because the first two days were weird. And, you know, I said, like, I found it weird too. I just wait till day three. I didn't know that it takes three days for people to actually be, you know, for brainwashing to occur. By brainwashing, I mean like an indoctrination or for someone's personality to be overridden by the cult personality. This is a very intensive, like all day yeah, type of like after yeah. three days, not just like an hour and then you go home. I mean, this is all day. It was like 8 a.m. till about 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. Wow. So we didn't sleep much. We Every class is about two to three hours and there's five classes a day. It would, you know, little breaks in between and a lunch break and a dinner break, but it was very quick. It was a lot. I mean, imagine doing, you know, 12 to 15 hours of therapy every day for five days. We didn't even have time to think, you know, but by the time I finally woke up, like two years later, and I looked at my calendar and cleared all my recurring events, which is basically a number of meetings and conference calls. It was like 25 hours just of conference calls for all the different things I was in charge of overseeing that I had to check in on. I'm like, this is just like the energy drain that, and I think that's what Keith wanted us to be so busy to never stop and think, wait, what am I doing? What is this? Who's this for? What, what, what's the purpose here? Yeah. Like they're wheeling in the like VCR yeah. and like putting the VCR in. <laughs> I think it was the DVD. <laughs> By the end it was iPads. <laughs> I think for something like this too, like there had to have been some real sort of nuggets of wisdom or like things that you felt you were really getting from it, at least at first that they had to like throw at you and just like something had to, and and there were that, like you could see Mm -hmm. that even in the, the beginning of the documentary where you're like, yes, like I could see how these things and these practices would make you feel like you're changing your life. And they like sprinkle in these like really great concepts, you know, and it's part of the gaslighting. Yeah. Do you think that being around Keith and the whole process, do you think he had the intent for the way the entire thing went? Or do you think that he had the intent to manipulate and to do all those things? But as things progressed and got more and he got more power and saw how much he could do, like it sort of just became more gross and more gross. I think both. I think he always had the intention to manipulate and to abuse and to 
have a group that he maintained through fear. You know, like the, like he talked about last night in the fable. I think that was, I mean, that conversation he had with Mark was a long time ago. He enjoyed, sociopaths love talking about the things that they're doing and to operate in plain sight. This is something that he even taught us. We just didn't know he was talking about himself. Can you explain that a little bit more for people that may not have seen last night's episode? Sure, yeah. There's a video because, you know, Keith wanted everything to be documented where he's telling this fable about an evil king and how he controlled through fear and how people were obedient. God, I don't really remember. I, I don't remember the points, but it was just now that you're watching it, it's so clear that Keith was saying to Mark, this is what I'm doing to you. Right. Oh. Yeah, I know. And and I've actually read the written version of it and it goes into much more detail and so one of the things I've learned since studying sociopaths after I left is that they love, it gives them great enjoyment to talk about, you never, we never thought it was Keith that was being a shifter or being suppressive, which is the strategies he taught us about what sociopaths do because he was teaching it to us. So we never right. figured that he would be one of those people, but he was actually explaining his life story and how he figured out how he didn't have a conscious or a morality and that how he, like Bonnie was explaining with somebody has all this, these options is there, is their sense of their self-esteem in a positive morality, like doing good things, but someone who doesn't have a, a positive morality will lie and steal and cheat and will do all these things that like you or I would never do. And that gives them a great sense of self-esteem. They come across as very charismatic and they can, you know, you're, you're drawn to them, but they would do all these things you'd never do. And you wouldn't project that onto them. Right. And, and they enjoy, you know, playing with you. And yeah, like being a puppeteer. Yeah. If you could put into words, what was it about Keith? Because obviously it's hard in retrospect and someone that knows what's going on while watching it. Like it is so hard for me to look at him and like- dirty troll? Yes, like (laughs) disgusting and just, and I know that's coming with a lot of knowledge, but but also like I'm not, in his presence, I wasn't hearing. And I can kind of, I can imagine, cause like, it, you know, when they show him talking and was there something you could put into words or that you had even heard of other people or yourself that you're like, what was it about him that was so appealing? So two things I just want to say, you know, I think people watching myself included, or, you know, when Nippy and I watch it, we're like, oh my God, if we'd seen that footage. Oh, of course. We'd yes. be like, we would have been out of there so long ago, but so much of that was kept from us. And wow. like he had this outer persona and then like behind closed doors, like him lying around in his robe and being fed by these women, like, ugh, ugh. gross. So pissed about the lies and the betrayal. But anyway, that's a separate thing. But I think by the time I met Keith, I'd already taken the training. And like you said, I had all these epiphanies, I had all these awakenings about myself and my belief system and my family and my relationships, and my career, everything. I was like, wow, a brand new perspective on life. I just felt on fire, you know? And so by the time I met him, I had a high regard for him. Right. Respected him already. And I've also spent five days at the end of each training going, thank you, Vanguard. Like, you know, praise be to the man who created this incredible curriculum, even though I hadn't met him. And then all these people saying, you know, he's this, he's that, he's the smartest, blah, blah, blah. Judo champion. (laughs) all those things that that pump, you know, they raised him up like a Greek chorus. So the time I met him, I felt like I was meeting, you know, a celebrity. I was starstruck by that. Part of what was interesting, and I I see this as the whole kind of fallacy of Keith, is that he's, he's just a dude, right? He's obviously just a dude, but 
and this is something that I don't think I've mentioned anywhere else, maybe in the book, I don't know, but whenever people met him for the first time, like at Vanguard Week or at a forum, Nancy would come out afterwards and debrief and she'd be like, wasn't he amazing? Wasn't he just, oh. and then she'd be like, what is anyone meeting him for the first time? What'd you think? Like, what'd you, and she'd get all excited and someone would say, yeah, it's weird though. Cause he's like so normal, you know? And Nancy would turn that into like, isn't that incredible? That somebody's so oh, like, he's so relatable, so relatable. Yeah. She turned that his dweebish yes. into something that was like a perk, you know, that he was somehow could make himself so accessible. Yeah. That's how great he is. Right. And so I think that was something that worked in his favor because people would be like, oh, he's just a dude and he happens to have a really high IQ and he's here to help and we can play volleyball and that's cool. But like, I personally hated volleyball. Oh my God. I cannot, like if I, I can't see him, I can't watch him play volleyball one more time. Like I will throw up. No, it's, it's so nauseating. And I, by the way, <laughs> one of the ways I woke up later is when I watched the movie, Holy Hell about the cult Buddha field. And they had the same thing with ballet which I was also never good at. So, and they all like had to watch him play ballet and they had these late night ballet. I was like, all these groups have this weird thing that the leader does to like, just basically, I think he did that to see who's willing to miss their sleep and play volleyball, which is, it was a first test of obedience. Just like they talked about Bonnie licking the puddle. Yes. Oh my God. So the first one, actually not even the puddle one that like really bothered my husband, but the one that bothered me is he told her to like run into a tree. And she stopped before smashing her face in. And he basically said that she was too protective of her body. You know, so awful. It's like everyone would have stopped before they got to the tree. It's like telling someone drive into a wall and see when they break, you know? And, and that's just like, so she would all, anyone would always fail that test. And it's just like this really abusive, manipulative, see you're protecting your body. Mm-hmm. And then the licking of the puddle. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's a whole, you know, whole I've been meaning to but, write to her and be like, oh, I just, you know, I feel like the women who live there and spent time there got it so much worse. Like Nippy and I were kind of other than what happened to my body, but the, you know, emotionally unscathed in that way. Like I got in trouble for some things, but they didn't really give it to me like they did to Bonnie and I was like, I cannot believe it's, it's really terrible. The level of abuse. So now looking back at what point do you feel like it crossed some lines. I mean, really from the beginning, I just didn't know that's what was happening. The, the right. boundary crossing and actually Keith taught us this is something that people do to manipulate. It's called line bending. It's bending the line. So like if I want you to say, you know, babysit my kids, it might be a bit much to say like, hey, can you come over and like watch my children all night? But it might start with, do you mind watching them for like an hour? I'm just going to run a quick errand. Oh, I'm running late. Are you can just, just put them to, you know, make them dinner. And next thing you know, you're having, like, you're staying the night because I have to stay out. You know what I mean? Like there's, it, it keeps getting bent yes. a little bit versus if I had asked initially, like if someone ever had asked me initially, you know, to, to join a group and get the initials of the leader scorched to my flesh, I would obviously right. have been like, you're a maniac. Right. But a slow, you know, slow bending of my, mor- of my morality and also of my, of my boundaries over time to the point like that's what you saw in the, in the module, in the module, oh God, in the, in the episode last night where Keith said like, what if morality doesn't exist? Like he was trying to get Keith to Mark to not have a morality. Right. You know, and luckily he was able to wake up. Yeah. Like, you know, in the beginning, you're learning these modules, as you, as you said, you're meeting other like-minded people. You're like having fun. You're spending, it, it almost looked like summer camp. 
It was, you know, and especially the retreats. Retreats felt like summer camp. They and they were at this beautiful facility in upstate New York on a lake. Yeah, <laughs> yoga and you know all these amazing hiking, sunset hikes, sunrise hikes is beautiful. But there was a lot of things that happened over time that I just, I mean, ultimately, like imagine being in a company and there's problems with the company, but right. ultimately you know, what company is perfect, you know, and you let things go and you go, well, you know, if there ever was a complaint, the response would, would usually be like, well, it seems like you have an attachment there, like you're being controlling or you even expectation, like go EM that, or, you know, like, well, this is, our, this is our company. It's a company built of us. If you want to be different then change it. Can you explain EMing for people? Sure. So an EM is called an exploration of meaning. And it's basically, you'd bring some, an issue to your EMP, exploration of meaning practitioner, you'd say, you know, I have a, um, a reoccurring reaction, a reoccurring challenge with XYZ. And the goal of the EMP would be to pull that reaction apart so that the thing no longer bothered you, whether it was a like confrontation or getting feedback or, you know, your husband not replacing the toilet paper roll or whatever the thing is, whatever. Or someone is taking advantage of you and your, your, your intuition is dinging and saying, this doesn't seem right. And then of course, can you imagine they EM you to take that apart and think about how there's something wrong with you. Exactly. I mean, the ultimate form of manipulation and can totally understand how that would keep someone in this organization for years. Exactly. And it's even, ironically, they even taught us that these tools, it's called rational inquiry. The tools that Keith taught us were tools, like a, a knife in the hand of a surgeon is very different than the knife in the hand of a doctor. So I mean, I gave many EMs to people where I know I help them with things like I help, you know, somebody get over stage fright or a a relationship with their father. And they called them for the first time in two decades. Like I know that I gave people really good EMs, but that same tool set absolutely can be used for manipulation. When I said, I don't want to get branded, Lauren's response was, what do you make it mean? What if it doesn't mean, you know, a scar in your body? What's a representation of your growth and your strength? changes the meaning. That's what an exploration of meaning does. It changes the meaning. So if I have a reaction to whatever and make it mean something and you can, right. you can make it mean something different. Right. Your perception. It's your perception, which is helpful. You know, there, it does, you know, to be able to not take something personally, for example, is a perceptive shift. A lot of people take really, you know, what other people do personally, doesn't mean that about you. That's a real release. And like the thing with DOS and the branding is that none of you guys actually knew you were being branded, first of all. And you didn't know you were being branded with his initials. No, that's, that's the, that's the You thing. thought you were getting a tattoo, which even that, like you just, and like, you didn't know he was actually behind DOS. DOS was supposed to be a female only. It's so, it's so ironic that it seemed like it was being branded for lack of a better word to you guys as this like female women's empowerment run by women for for women how can women do better in the world yeah and actually in the end you find out that first of all you've been branded it's not a tattoo it's his initials mm-hmm. you are slaves like you're literally called slaves and it's actually run by him yeah and i piece those things together not all in one moment so, but when right, I, of course, when I, when I did figure out the whole picture, I mean, it was unbelievably horrifying. It's, I mean, I can't, I can't actually put myself there because it's just, it actually triggers yes. my PTSD. So I have to talk about it kind of like superficially, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. 
And actually, that's one of the reasons why I agreed to, you know, go on the vow and to write and why I decided to write the book is like, I wanted to help people. I wanted to educate people to go like, okay, this is what it looks like. And this is how I got into the situation. So it never happens again. But I also was like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. You know, like, yeah, it's too triggering. And, you know, people, people want to know certain things. I'm like, just read the book, you know, watch the vow. And it's, that's good. But at the same time, obviously I still have more healing to do because it still really bothers me to talk about how that happened. So many people focus on that one particular thing where I think that, yes, of course, that is, that's sort of the jaw dropping. Everyone's going to listen and WTF, but there's so much more important pieces of it. That's like the 12 years leading up. Like you can't, you can't just talk about that and understand how that happened without right. the subtle and the really like in your face stuff that was going on for years and years and years to get like to line bend you enough to get to that point. Exactly. I think it's so important if people want to try to understand how someone could get to that point and, and quote unquote, allow that to happen they have to understand everything that happened before. And it's clear to see when you start, you know, if they read your book or mm-hmm. even watch the full, all the episodes so far of The Vow or, or if you listen to the podcast or if you've ever seen anything about cults or anything with that, if you start to really understand the years and years of gaslighting and trust building and grooming that happens and, and that happens in abusive relationships, mm-hmm. like it's very, very clear to see how literally anyone could be in that position. And I think that's the part where I think it's so important to do what you're doing. And I, I commend you. It it is not, it took so much courage and it continuously takes courage to talk about it. A, because I'm sure there's a lot of fear and there is the PTSD, Mm -hmm. but like, I think it's so much more, it's courageous that you were one of the the most talented sort of recruiters and how much work you did to throw in the towel and say like, this isn't right. And now I have to actually do the work to like de-recruit people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. <laughs> I, I had to, I had to, Oh, I mean, it was a no brainer. I mean, I, I think, I think the, they would, they touted me as the poster child for my ability to recruit. And that's not something I'm proud of. I, I have to, I'm saying it from a place of, uh, fuck, I did that. So now I, I, it was the right thing to do. Like I brought them in, I had to bring them out. And with the same tenacity that I put all of my life force into building the community, I put the same tenacity, if not more, into bringing it down. And they were not obviously happy with that because, you know, I destroyed the community. But the community still exists. It's just they don't follow Keith anymore, except for the, you know, five people who remain loyal, or as Nippy calls them, the flat earthers. So without following Keith, who do they follow? Well, they, they, they can still follow Keith because he can make phone calls from prison. So they're just, they're following him and his orders from there, which I'm sure won't be great for his sentencing. <laughs> I think like the part that was most sort of chilling for me or angered me the most was this like destruction and the dismantling of human instinct and intuition. Yeah. I feel like the whole doctrination and all the years of the gaslighting and the grooming was literally piece by piece, like taking away everyone's human ability to listen and trust and act upon their own intuition. Absolutely. And so Ron, I'm drinking my friend's kombucha company. 
Hoochie Booch. And she, her, her thing on her website is trust your gut. And uh, it's taken me a while to relearn how to do that. Yeah. I was going to ask you, how did that process go? And, and in, in, you know, a topic in our podcast, that's so important is I, you know, everything I really talk about when I talk about optimism is resiliency mm-hmm. and, and sort of rebuilding and sort of working through struggle and how are you, or how did you, and how do you continue to work through rebuilding your gut and your intuition and, and sort of being able to honor that? One of them I think is just a lot of therapy and talking about things with somebody who, who's not gaslighting me, you know, actually I've got a team like a cult therapist and a regular psychologist. I think again, it's ironic. Keith used to say things like character is not character until it's tested. And a lot of what we were doing in ESP was just like, blah, blah, blah. You know, what if this, what if that? And now I actually had an opportunity to see who, what am I actually made of? And to give a sense of who Sarah is under great adversity, under the biggest challenge of my life. And, and, and like, what am I willing to do? Sorry, I'm getting choked up. No, it's okay. And having that sense of like, this is who I am. And this is what I'm made of actually. And connecting to that and, and, and just not having any other person's influence as I make decisions and and connecting to myself and knowing myself and part of this whole experience. And I'll never thank him for this. I thank myself for it because I made the choices is going through this incredibly, whether you want to call it spiritual or meaningful or purposeful life journey that I'll never have ever again. I didn't choose it willingly. It's not what I planned, but I ended up on this path because of my choices and I feel like it was kind of my purpose. It was, I'm not going to say kind of, take that back. It was my purpose to be a part of this organization and to see the light and be a part of the team that took it down and to yeah. shine light on these things. And these things are happening all over the place, not just in cults, religions and relationships, and all, in, in politics, it's everywhere. And I do feel good about those choices. And it's way more meaningful than anything I've ever done, any role I've ever had, separate from being a mom, which is another thing, but in terms of like a career, you know, I, I know myself, I trust myself and I have to be connected to that as I navigate the world. And I don't always make the best decisions since as soon as I fuck up, but I'm on the right path. I think <laughs> feels like I'm, feels like I'm doing okay. Are there times that in your day to day, something creeps up in your thought or your behavioral pattern that's sort of like, oh my gosh, wait, this is a Nexium thing. And is this mm-hmm. something that is good I can take like a skill or is this something like fucked and I need to like dismantle it? Yeah, after, it happens a lot. And, and Nippy and I talk about it a lot where I say, wait a second, you know, even just the concept of like being at cause that we cause our emotions, you know, like that's a great thing to be like, I'm responsible for my emotional state, but it doesn't mean that someone else gets to be a total dick and say, well, you're, you're at cause you can choose your emotions. Like, no, well, you're also being a dick. Okay. So like right. you participate here, you know, you know, things like that. Like what's the good of being at cause and what's the bad of it. It's, it makes people at causedness makes people very ripe for being gaslit. Because if I say I have a problem with what you're doing, I say, well, I don't like that you're branding people. And they're like, well, you seem upset. You should go get an EM right? You're not at cause with your emotions. No, I'm upset because that's wrong. Right. Hmm. You seem reactive. Like that's, you know what I mean? So that kind of thing kind of creeps, not so much anymore, more so at the beginning, but I think the thing where it's not good for my psyche still to this day is I have dreams and obtrusive thoughts where like, I imagine seeing 
Nancy or Lauren or you know some of the people that are still loyal and being like, the fuck, you know, I need, yeah. I need to have that closure with them, you know, I'm, yes. I'm not done. Like I, if I have to go visit Lauren and Nancy in prison through a glass and have that conversation, I'm going to. What would you say to Lauren if oh. you were in front of her? I mean, I feel very differently now than I did when even, even when I wrote the book, but I would say like, you know, I'm not in a legal sense, but an emotional sense, I forgive her. You know, I really do. I think she was also a victim of Keith and I just want her to like deal with what she did. Like legally, I still think she needs to be held accountable, but like, I want her to have her life back. Like I want her to be a mom. I want to like, I, I, we had a good relationship before this. I used to teach her how to like make adaptogen lattes and protein smoothies. Like I was her health guru. You know what I mean? She was my everything else guru, but like we had a, you know, I guess not so healthy relationship, but parts of it were healthy. And I, I want to heal that. I want, I mean, I just don't like, I don't like having unresolved things with people. I don't like having bad blood with people. I don't know how she feels about me. Maybe she's hates me for, you know, being public or doing the vow or writing the book or whatever. I don't know. We don't have contact, but I want to forgive her and give her a hug and say, I hope you heal. I hope you like heal these issues within yourself so you can, you know, be happy and, and live the life that you want. What about Keith? You'll have to hear it in my victim impact statement in this trial. <laughs> the main thing I said to him was, you know, you tried, you tried to ruin my life. You know, you, you tried to brand me. I had it removed and you failed. Like I'm a happy mom of kids and like, you're a con man in jail. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Long and short of it. What do you think kept you and Nippy together? I think that we went through something like incredibly traumatic, but, you know, ideally we shared similar, I hate using these words because it's kind of Nexium language, but we share similar values of what we want to see and who we want to be. And, you know, partly, you know, in the thick of it, when things were rough, having, you know, having kids and being like, okay, we're going to work through this, you know, at a time, I think many relationships would be like, oh, fuck this, this is just escape. You know, we, we wanted to preserve our family and we wanted to, I mean, ultimately when we got together, we barely knew each other because we were so busy with cult stuff. So we're, we're just right. like, we're just starting again. What did your family and Nippy's family, like when you were in it, like those 12 years, did you have family members that thought like, this is all good? Did you have any people in your life that were like, something's not right? Or was it just like, you know, my daughter or my sister or whatever works for an executive success program? Yeah. I didn't know till afterwards really how much people thought that what we were doing was weird. I mean, people sort of made jokes, but like no one ever sat me down and, and had a, mm -hmm. like a heart to our heart and said like, this is what we see. You know, there would, it would be more little digs. I felt very judged and I always mm -hmm. felt like, well, they don't get it. They don't see what we see. Right. And some people are more supportive than others and other people are still judging us. So you know, yeah, not been the best for the family dynamics, but the people who love us, love us. And, and that's what I'm focusing on. I'm so honored that you would sit down and, and talk about this. And I hope to have you on again as things sort of unfold further and to check in on you on this like new life mm -hmm. that I think it's really interesting how you even said with Nippy, like you guys were so busy when you got together with the cult stuff, mm -hmm. as you put it, that you're sort of like getting to know each other in like a different way right now. And in, in a more free way, I would say, and, and creating this like new, new life, new life together. 
that is more based on the things you guys want to do and not being told every single emotion you must feel and, yeah. and to EM it out. And I think that it's really um, valiant that, you know, in the middle of all of it to, to not only leave, but to leave publicly, that is not easy. Yeah. True story. That was a, that was a really tough moment to destroy everything that I'd built for so long. So I know that you have the book out right now and yes, it's called Scarred and it's out now, right? It's available for purchase right now. It's also on Audible too, by the way, narrated. Also, The Vow is out right now. I just heard there's a season two. Yeah. So there's that. Oh, the other thing I just wanted to say is how horrific, but also incredible that there was so much footage. I know. There was footage of... It seems like every conversation Keith ever had. Yeah. You're supposed to tape it so that you could go back and listen to it and like make sure, you know, and also he wanted everything documented for his, like the Keith Museum. Oh, wow. So that's something, nar- that's something, yeah, narcissistic and sociopathic that actually bit him in the ass. Mm-hmm. Or what was known that he thought would happen or his hope for happening with all of this footage. It was being stored on hard drives and they wanted it to be so that you could type in like, what has Keith ever said about global warming? Or what has Keith ever said about polyamory? Whatever. Wow. It was all there. But let's end on a more positive note. Let's talk. The positive note (laughs) that I want to end on is, well, it's all like the fact that you're here you are reclaiming your life and you're helping other people's reclaim theirs. And you are now, you know, it's kind of interesting. What you wanted was to help other women and to have a platform to use your voice and to make a powerful change. And that's exactly what you're doing right now. (laughs) Just unfortunately (laughs) had to take a, a horrible experience, but I love how you have a silver lining with your, your husband and your beautiful family. And I wanted to ask you what's looking up for you. What are you most hopeful about and what are you optimistic about? Hmm. That light is being shone. Literally, as I'm saying this, like, as I tell you, there's like sunlight coming through my window. The sun just broke. And yeah, that this is, that this type of behavior will change in the world because people will be more educated and, you know, the, the experience was not for nothing. So I'm optimistic about that. All right. And the last thing that we do on looking up, if you were with me, I would have you pick this yourself and I am going to send you a deck of these. Oh, this is my, my deck of cards. Things are looking up. Okay. Random card for you. This is yours. It's pretty. Okay. Check your expectations. Are you expecting something positive or negative to happen? Now try and focus on the things you are positively expecting to occur. Optimism tip. We often get what we expect, not what we want. Mm, I like that. So that one's yours. And I had such a good time chatting with you and learning from you. And I am in awe of your journey and I am so inspired by it. Thank you so much. And I wish you the best of luck, especially over this next week. Thank you. I I wish that too. And let's definitely keep in touch. And thank you for the wonderful questions and conversation. It was so good chatting. You too. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info on how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.